I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. Right, everyone, here we go. Today we have a really interesting podcast. We are going to be talking about the benefits of blind weighing. We're also going to talk about if people have a different idea of it. We cannot say what is right or wrong. Everybody is unique. Every situation needs to be explored. So let's just jump right in. Here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am really excited. We have two guests on for today. We have Dr. Chris Harris and Sierra Bloodgood. Welcome both to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. We're we're really excited. And so I was wondering, and either one of you can go first. Actually, I'm going to call in Sierra first, only because Chris is muted. So Sierra, can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and and why you're here on the episode today? And then we'll we'll talk to Chris. Yes, of course. Um, hello, my name is Sierra Bluggett. I'm so grateful that you are, you're having me today. Thank you so much for this. I am... Um, I work. I work at a company called Brewbike. It's a student-run coffee business. I'm the CEO at the company. I am here with you today because I have gone through an eating disorder. I I do have an eating disorder. I was diagnosed when I was 21. Um, I ended up doing the whole outpatient thing. Ended up going to inpatient. I went to Oliver Pyatt Centers in in Florida. Um, from there, I got discharged. Did some outpatient in in Austin, Texas. Um, and since then, I've been an advocate for awareness and recovery. I've been in several groups, um, and I'm currently sitting on the board with Chris of, of ClearStep. Fantastic. Sierra, we are so glad to have you here on the show. Chris, can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and why you're here today? Yes, thanks again for having us. So my name is Dr. Chris Harris. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I've been working in the field of eating disorders for about a decade, um, both as a clinician and as an administrator. And um, ClearStep was just an idea that that came out of the the um, pandemic and. Um, has been an exciting journey. So, so happy to be here. So I'm going to explain to listeners a little bit about ClearStep, at least what I know of it. And then I'm going to, I'm going to give everyone a roadmap. What we're going to do is Sierra, we're going to talk a little bit about your experience, and then we're going to talk about how the numberless scale helps clients 
that are that are trying to go through the recovery process and you can do it now from anywhere, which is so amazing. So both of you correct me if I'm wrong. It is a numberless scale that clients get. And there is a, a way, remember, I know nothing about technology. I'm going to say there's an app that goes to say your dietitian. Is that? And it is a scale where there are no numbers and the dietitian automatically gets the reading of the numbers. And one of the things that's so great about this is that especially due to the pandemic, so many people cannot make it into the dietitian's office. They are not able to, they don't have access to other treatment facilities. So we're not, you're not able to get an accurate weight on somebody. And it is one component of somebody's eating disorder. And I want to be very clear about that. This is not, we do not determine someone's, where someone's at strictly from the weight, but it is an important piece of the entire picture. And so have I, I'm going to start by asking, have I described it correctly? Yes. And I think you describe both the holistic aspect of care, including the the clear step and the access to care issues that we hope to solve. I I guess I'm, I gave you guys a roadmap and I'm already taking a detour. So what are some of the, 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 the things that you've noticed, either Sierra or Chris, from, especially from the pandemic, people that don't have access to care? How did this come about? We were sitting in a treatment team and the pandemic had hit and we like everybody else in the world we're going you know trying to figure out how are we going to you know treat our clients um to give them the best quality of care when we have all of these roadblocks um we had come up with different solutions but it didn't feel good going to the client and saying okay so you're going to need to drive to your doctor's office you know, in the middle of the pandemic and go there and this is what's going to happen or um, this person that's not really up to date in your recovery is the only person in your life that could help. And here's how you're going to do blind weights. Our options were not, were not great. And some people, you know, it was, a, it was workable, but others, they weren't. And so we, you know, I got on Google and said, how do I fix this? Um, and came across a company that had developed a numberless scale, gave them a call, and uh, Natty Lavi is uh, the CEO of that company, and he said, well, let's, you know, um, put something together, and here's what it will cost, and and I was working for a small um, eating disorder treatment center at the time, and, you know, I said, we can't, we can't do anything like that, that's, that's too much for, for us, and he said, well, why don't you come aboard and let's, let's build it together. And, you know, I think this is a, a worthwhile thing. And so we did and um, got some great help from eating disorder community and um, feel like it has, you know, both of those things that I, I referenced in the beginning, both added to the quality of care for clients and added another access um, level of care for clients that either by the pandemic didn't have the access that they needed 
or because they're living, you know, too far away, or it's, you know, it's it's not um, economical for them to drive in to see their dietitian as many times as they needed to. Um, so I think it's brought to surface more issues than we knew were around as well, too. Yeah, I'm I'm going to ask a question, and I think. Chris, if you could answer it from the, I'm going to say the company's perspective, and then Sierra, I'd like you to answer it from your own personal experience. And I guess my question is, is was there any pushback uh, regarding the fact that there's also controversy whether a client should see their weight or not? This is not a cut and dry, you know, answer. Um, and so were there any people that were saying, why are you doing it numberless? Now, I'm going to say, I think every situation is unique. I think every client is unique. I think there are times when blind weights are necessary. I myself am not saying I have a definitive answer of how of where I fall on this this discussion. So I'm curious, again, was there pushback from any uh, anybody in the field? And Sierra, let's talk about what your experience is, was like and how you would have felt having something like this. So Chris, what are your thoughts? You know, I think you're right. There is controversy. And I think that's controversy is great. You know, everyone, like you said, is different and requires, you know, different needs. And there was enough of, um, to use the word market, for people wanting the product. And so what that told us is that there's enough people that don't want to see their weight in the t places in treatment where they are, that this is solving that problem. And when I talk to other clinicians, you know, every, you know, everyone like treats their client individually as, as best as they can. Um, and so the client gets a say in that. And we found that, um, and also kind of depends on the level of care and where you are um, in your recovery journey, because um, seeing your weight is maybe part of it, may not be part of it, or it may be part of the outpatient process, or it may be part of the residential process. It depends on the model that you're using um, and it depends on the client. Absolutely. Sierra? Can you share a little bit about your narrative with your eating disorder and then sort of answer the question that for you, would this have been helpful? And by the way, as I'm asking this, I hope you don't think I'm asking in a in a combative way, like, would this have been helpful? But I mean, I, I think I think it's an amazing, amazing product. Um, and now I feel like I'm doing a product placement ad, everyone. But I do. I think I think logistically, I think that especially, you know, treatment access, you know, accessibility, I think it's phenomenal. And so I'm just trying to get Sierra, like, what's your opinion? How would that have helped or not helped? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I I, I just want to say that I am so impressed with the Clear Step product and team. Um, it's really cool to see innovation in this space. Um, there hasn't, I mean, I, I've, I've only, I've been following this world for about 10 years and this is, it's really, really encouraging to see this type of innovation. Um, and it's very encouraging to see companies like ClearStep trying to make treatment more accessible because we know that it's not, um, as accessible as 
at least I would like it to be. Um, and I think you're exactly right. Every situation is unique. Every client is unique. All eating disorders are unique. Um, there's no, I don't, there, there's no cut and dry path to recovery. I look at this tool as a tool. That's exactly what it is. It is a very helpful tool in the recovery process. I personally, I love, I love the idea. I love the product. I love the team. I love everything about it. Personally, it's, it would have played a very important role for me before I went to treatment. And when I was in treatment, I had no say over what type of scale I used. I just did what I was told. I can see how helpful this would have been in the, um, the outpatient process once I was discharged from Oliver Pyatt. I moved to, to Austin and I was doing my outpatient there. And I was seeing a doctor every day and I was going to groups every day. Um, but I, I can definitely see how this would have been helpful for my treatment team in Florida to be able to, to monitor me. And I, I, would, I would have felt great about that. I'm of the mindset where that that numbers don't help me. Numbers personally for me, numbers numbers hurt me, and I know that about myself. So every time I go to the doctor, I still take a blind wait. Like I still tell them I have to step on the scale backwards, and please don't tell me. Thank you. Um, and I feel no shame about that. But anyway, all that to say, I, I I would feel if I if I had access to a product like this when I was going through my outpatient treatment. Um, I would have, I would have felt very, I would, I know that my treatment team would have had with the, the information that they needed and I would have felt a lot safer, but, um, I am grateful for, for the experience that I had just, it's just so we're clear for my treatment team listening. I'm very, I'm very grateful for the experience that I had. You know, it's interesting when you said safe and I think safety is something that I, I think of when I think about what what doing blind weigh-ins because let's also talk about the fact that we're talking about a spectrum of eating disorders, a spectrum of body types, a spectrum of of everything. And let's not forget, even in the medical field, there is fat phobia. And so clients are feeling judged whether whether they're coming in to, to, to weigh themselves from anorexia, bulimia, you know, binge eating disorder, whatever it is. And so I wonder if there's a safety factor on the entire spectrum of eating disorders because of the blind weigh-ins. I don't, I don't know if either of you have a thought of that. I mean, personally, I, 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 I think so. Um, I know that I'm not, when I'm, I'm, with something like this, I know that I'm not in control. I don't have to be in charge. I don't have to make the decision if this is if this is right or wrong. I trust the people that are making that decision for me. Yeah. Chris, you look like you were going to say something. You know, is there, a, there was an interesting point in the process where um, we had given the scale to a couple of the clients and we had said, you guys are the first ones in the nation to use this. You know, tell us what you think. and. Um, we felt like it, you know, obviously it was safe enough at that point to use it. And I called one of the clients and they were in their outpatient kind of aftercare mode. And we, after we talked about where they were, I said, you know, how, what's the scale like? And she's like, oh, that thing. And she's like, it's actually kind of cute. Um, and I thought, okay, well, this is different. I've never heard that before. Um, never expected to hear anything like that. 
And so there is that, I think, that safety piece with it that um, it almost becomes, you know, a, a part of the, you know, part of our toolbox, but um, a very, you know, unthreatening one. Um, whereas before, um, you could not say that about that scale. I also think the safety piece part of it, speaking from my own experience as a clinician um, and someone who's been recovered for so many years, we're living in different times. And, you know, it's one thing if you go to the doctors and you do either a blind weight or you see the weight, whatever, but you're physically in the room with a physician or with your dietitian or with your therapist. And when the pandemic hit, I have clients that would have become incredibly dysregulated, possibly self-harmed in other ways other than abusing themselves through an eating disorder. So there's a safety that it, it provides a safety for the clients because they are doing this in their home and some of them are doing it alone. And so... I think, again, as a clinician, for me, I feel like it's a really, really safe way of taking care of people. I, I don't know if either of you have any thoughts to add to that or if that was just pretty much it. Oh, yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, there's that autonomy and safety that you don't have anywhere else but your home. Um, and to give someone... Um, access to be sending biometric data to their treatment team from the comfort of their couch, um, I think is an amazing opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Sierra, what is it like for you as an advisory board member working in the field? And by the way, working on a product that talks about weights, talks about it. Does it get triggering for you? You know, everybody has a different experience. For me, I love working in the field. I'm passionate. I'm, you know, but I'm far along in my recovery. So I, I don't get triggered. How is it for you? That's a really great, great question. And I, I do think about that all the time. I think about triggers all the time, just because they're so um, individual and unique. Um, and I always want to be aware of other people's triggers. I personally don't Feel whenever I'm sitting on these board meetings and um, we're talking about the product, I, I've not felt triggered at all, which is a blessing. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful for that. But no, I, it has, I haven't felt triggered. I am very passionate. Um, I get upset a lot just because of the state of the industry and, and the struggles that I know so many people are, are dealing with right now. Um, so I get very I get, I get worked up quite a bit, but I don't get, I wouldn't say that I get triggered. Oh, so you get passionate and use your voice as opposed to swallowing your emotions and using your eating disorder behaviors. Wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Siri, you are doing some advocacy work. So what else are you doing other than the, than the clear step and, and what are some of the challenges that both of you are seeing in the industry that need, need to be looked at? Uh, the number, the number one thing for me is access to care. I, um, I had been pretty silent about my eating disorder until I just felt this um, 
personally, I just like felt this sense of, of shame. And I was like, this is a weird thing. I had been pretty silent about my eating disorder for, for years. And then meet a week, 2020, I told myself that I was going to start talking about my eating disorder. Um, I actually had a friend who I went to treatment with pass away. Um, she relapsed and, and ended up passing away a couple months before that. And when that happened, another one of our friends from, from treatment called me to tell me. And when that happened, I was like, I'm, I, I know I, I have an experience that I know can help people. And I have to share person. I, I feel like I have to share this experience. Obviously not everybody has to share their experience. I felt like I needed to, because I knew that it could help people. And that was, um, that was in the, the fall of 2019. And then it was meet a week, 2020. And I remember the first day I was like, I'm going to make a post. I'm going to post about my eating disorder. That's day one. And then day two, I'm like, I'm still going to do this. Day three, no post. Day four, no post. Day five, no post. It's finally Sunday of need a week at 4 p.m. I'm about to go. I had, a, I had a coffee meeting. I was sitting in this coffee shop and I was like, I only have a couple hours. Am I going to do this or not? And I had like 15 minutes until my meeting came. And I just made, I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to do this before this meeting. And then we go into this meeting and let it, let it live. And so I did that. And after the meeting, I had, I had so many comments and a ton of messages about what I had posted, uh, telling other people saying, hey, I, I lived this experience too. Hey, can we talk about this? Hey, what did you do? Hey, how do I know if I have an eating disorder? What's the first step? Just all of these questions. Like I had no idea that this many people in my immediate network had no idea about eating disorders, don't know where to start, might be struggling, but not sure. Um, and that's when I realized that there's just, there's the, the level of awareness and advocacy and access to treatment is not where we need it to be. And that's what I, that's what started this for me. That's when I was like, okay, I can talk about this. We can, we can work on this together. Like, let's see what I can do in this space. Um, and so that's been my, my experience in the industry. And, and I think that that's still what my, my number one qualm with the eating disorder industry is that I don't think there's enough access to care. So I want to make two comments. One, I love that you said, I'm going to put this out there and that, or I'm paraphrasing, I'm going to post this and then let it live out there or just let it live. Meaning it is not, whatever happens after is not about me. It's just going to have, I'm going to let it go and look at what came back, right? All this. And I know that I also am very, very much into about accessibility for care. Um, and and it, it, it like, I can feel it in my chest when I think about people not having accessibility. And, and I myself am on a board. I'm, I'm a board member for Within and we use ClearStep. And, and again, I'm sorry, everyone. I feel like this is a big promotion and it's not. So forgive me. I just very get very passionate when I talk about stuff. And so I was super excited when I heard about the accessibility to care that was going to start spreading throughout the country and what the, what the numberless scale was able to do. Again, 1-800 numberless scale. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so I, I think that when, when we've struggled 
also when we've worked in the field for a long time, or I speak for myself, I, I get very passionate where I'm like, no, 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 we need more. We need to, how do we spread it out? What's happening? We need more. We need more. So it, it happens and, and it's needed. It's really needed in our industry. Chris, what are your thoughts of some things that need to, you know, to be changed now that you're in this world of sort of growing in the industry of, of noticing what's not available? It looks to me like the industry is grappling with the growth of um, both. This is from the people that are out there telling their story, like Sierra, of, of people saying, this is what I went through and these are my needs. And um, the industry just can't handle it right now. The, you know, the growth rate since COVID was astronomical. No one, I didn't saw that coming at all. So there's a lot of catch up to do. Um, there was catch up, like we all know, there was catch up to do before the pandemic happened. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it's a double-sided um, issue there for sure. Uh, the industry is responding to it. There is innovation that's happening. Um, there is expansion that's happening, but it's not enough, right? Not enough yet. No, it's not. And every time I feel like we make one step forward, something sort of, you know, kind of pulls it back. And and I don't I don't mean to be negative. I mean this is this is part of life, right? So it's just sometimes one step forward, three steps back, two steps forward, one step back. So it's it's an interesting time to be in the mental health industry. It's it's a really, you know, I know that I am so grateful for what I do. I love what I do. And it breaks my heart how needed I am. Like what's happening right now with mental health? Like how needed all these clinicians and dietitians? And it's very unfortunate. What do either of you think about virtual treatment? I, again, and, you know, as a board member for Within, think that it's phenomenal because of the accessibility of people that we can reach. How do you two feel about programs being completely virtual? I can jump in. Um, personally, I know that I needed to be in, I needed to be in person. I needed to be in in, in patient treatment. I, I know that I needed that. I also wasn't, I wasn't presented with um, many virtual options at all. And so I know that it's gotten a lot better. And I do think tools like ClearStep make virtual treatment possible, right? Where before, like, I just, I don't know how I could have gone through it. Um, I do, I, again, I do think tools like ClearStep make it possible. And honestly, it's, I look at it and again, every eating disorder is different. Every situation is unique. Everybody has different needs. For some people, I think it totally works. And I love that, right? It's just whatever works, like let's, let's do that. And so I look at virtual treatment as another option that we didn't have before. So it's only good because it only gives us more options for treatment, more options for care. It's so funny because before the pandemic started, I I'm licensed in multiple states. So I've been doing telehealth since before the pandemic started, but very minimal. And I thought, how can people connect over Zoom or whatever platform, simple practice? Like, how is this going to work? When the pandemic hit, I thought, 
the mental health industry, people's people's mental health is it's it's all going to suffer. And I have to say, you can connect really well. Uh, number one, sometimes it's the only option, like during a pandemic. Number two, sometimes it's just the most convenient option because you have children or you're a student or you're working full time. But I feel that the quality of care does not suffer. Like you can still connect with clients or with your treatment team. And so I I was very surprised that that the virtual world took off the way that it did. But I, I think it's fantastic. Chris, do you have anything to add? Yeah. Um, so I would say that you hear a lot, nothing can compare to to in-person treatment. And I think that the virtual treatment said, hold my beer, we're going to do it. And um, I think that's, I think that's great. You know, anytime that we maintain the relationship, how whatever modality or whatever intervention or platform we're using it, that's the most important thing. And we can keep that, then I think they're going to do well. And, and I think you're right. There, there's so many applications to virtual treatment that we probably even haven't discovered yet. Um, I'm working with a company now that's um, looking at doing virtual reality therapy in the metaverse. So <clears throat> it's all coming, and um, it's up to providers and, and people that are passionate about access to care that want to provide treatment in whatever form they can to the people that need it the most. Um, and if we're, if we're doing, if that's our goal, then we're going to do it. I mean, and, you know, we have that, we have that passion and, and people are going to find solutions to these problems. Yeah. Dear, can you share a little bit about what your recovery looked like you know recovery is different for everybody and you know I I I love that whole day one I was going to post day two I was going to post like that seems to be a lot of like recovery momentum like I'll do it tomorrow but like the intention is there and then you're like oh, I can't do it. but what what was the process like and, and actually how long did you struggle with an eating disorder for Good questions. Um, okay, so I started. I struggled with an eating disorder for for probably three years. Two of those years were pretty severe um, before even being introduced to the concept of treatment. Um, I actually, I, I love this story, and and I, I'll I'll tell it briefly because it's very important to me. But I I had. I started struggling with an eating disorder in college and my, some people, some of my roommates would voice a little bit of concern, but nothing, nothing too aggressive. Um, and so I just kept doing what I wanted to do. And I had a summer internship in New York and I lived with my aunt Betsy, who is my hero. And I, for, I arrive in New York first day and this is, this was in in May, and the last my last month or two of college, I had I had quite a few of my friends saying like, "Hey, there's something wrong," and I was like, "No, wouldn't hear, would not hear any of it." I stepped foot into my aunt Betsy's house, and she goes, "We we went to we went to dinner, and we got back from dinner, and she was like, there's something wrong.'" 
And then I broke down. I was like, I know. It was the first time I even acknowledged it. And she was like, but that's okay. And we're going to get through this together. And she literally that summer, I was there for an internship. And I thought I was there for an internship in New York. And really, I was there to to walk through this with my Aunt Betsy. Um, But truly, that summer, she stood next to me. She held my hand. And she helped me be okay with the fact that I had a problem. I needed help. That was thing number one that she did. Thing number two is that she actually facilitated that help. Right. So she was taking me to the doctors, taking me to therapists, taking me to a dietitian, um, making my meals. She was like really in it with me. Um, And I felt so it was like the first time that I felt so seen and loved. And I knew that it was okay, And I was and it was okay to have this problem. And I was going to get through it. Fast forward end of the summer. I'm like, okay, I'm going back to school. Thanks so much. (laughs) She was like, actually we're not (laughs) actually we're going to Florida and packed up my bags literally flew with me down to Florida to drop me off flew back the same day she's just so amazing like that Um, and I'm just so grateful that I had that support system and I truly don't know what I would have done without it I don't know if I would have gotten to treatment without that um and that's I, I look at that and I just feel so grateful that I had that and it makes me feel very sad for people who don't necessarily have an Aunt Betsy, but my message is that you do. Everybody does. Everybody does. I will be Aunt Betsy. Call me. I'll be, I'll be right there. Side note. So that's how I got to treatment. That was my experience pre-treatment. Um, and then I, and then I went through the process. I was inpatient and then started, um, then went back to, I was going to school in Texas. I moved back to Austin. I started doing outpatient therapy there. Um, and then, and, you know, progress isn't linear. I did end up relapsing once, um, went back. I didn't go back to inpatient, went back to outpatient. That's when I started telling my roommates, like my really close friends. Um, and I was able to build a really great support system, um, with my best friends in, in Austin who would, watch me and be with me and not be too pushy, but, but would voice their concern whenever they had them. And, and I felt like I, I owed it not only to myself, but also to my friends to continue on this, um, this recovery journey to, so that I could show up for, for people. Um, and that was, that was my recovery experience. Let me ask you a question. And I'm asking this, hoping that all my clients are listening right now especially the clients that I work with that struggle with the idea of taking time off of college to go into treatment. Because you said it's so like lickety split. Aunt Betsy said, we're going to treatment. And I was like, okay. And I'm thinking, I don't know if it was like (laughs) that. So how did you get through that? How did you, how did you, you know, lean into that as opposed to pulling away saying, nope, I'm going to go back to school. Yeah, don't get me wrong. There was plenty of kicking and screaming and all of the tears. So there was, there was, I, 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 you know, I probably, um, yeah, I didn't do that story justice because there was plenty of that. I, she said, we're going, we're going to Florida. I was like, I'm going to college. Bye. I'm going back. And she said, no. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Excuse me. Um, So yeah, there was, there was a lot of that. I had a really hard time. I thought, in my mind, I was like, no, it's totally fine. I'll go back. I'll figure it out. Um, and looking at it now, I know that I, I, I don't know. 
I, I believe that I would not have been able to do that. Um, and so I'm grateful that my Aunt Betsy did make me go to Florida, but it was not easy. It was, I struggled with a couple things. One, I was going to be behind in life, right? Like I'm a, I'm an achiever. I don't want to be behind. I actually ended up, I was on track to, to graduate a year early. And so I was like, I can't, I've got to, I've got to do this. Um, but then there was a moment where I was, it was before going to treatment, I was trying to read a book and I remember laying in bed and it took me 20 minutes to read a single page. And that's when I was like, I can't, how do I think I'm going to go back to college and learn? Like, I can't, my brain is not functioning. Like, I can't, I can't even focus on a page. That's when I was like, okay, I'll do, I'll do what it takes so that I can make my college education worth it. Um, and then also just getting over the, the social aspect, right? I was like, what are my friends going to think? Like, what, they're going to ask why I'm not back. Like, am I going to have to tell them? Uh, and I, I hated that. I got really embarrassed. I felt a ton of shame, but then I realized that it was a, it was the strong thing to do, right. To go take care of myself and do what I needed to do. And I got back and everybody, I think people were happier to see me. I think I, I think it was, it was way more fun that I did miss the semester and I came back and my friends were right there. So proud of me. And I had a powerful story to share. I know for myself um, I also had to take time off of college and, you know, with the idea of like, I'm going to be falling behind, I'm going to be missing all this stuff. I wasn't present for anything anyway. So I wasn't missing anything by going home and taking care of myself as opposed to, you know, robotically walking through my college career in an eating disorder. And the reality is, and by the way, easier, easier to say when you're on this side of it than to somebody who's in the moment, life is not always on time. Like things don't always happen. Like college doesn't happen in four years and graduate school, whatever it is. And once we can sort of take that pressure off of ourselves, we say, okay, what is my life going to look like if I take this time? It's going to be better, the quality, my health, physical, emotional, my relationships, my relationship to school, all of it. And we culturally, we just get so stuck on this, like, nope, got to do it in four years. I, I did college, God, I think in five and a half years or five years. I don't even know. And that's another thing I have said to, to clients when they're like, I can't take time off. I said, do you know how long it took me to finish college? And they're like, no. And I'm like, exactly. You, it doesn't matter. What matters is recovery, whether you do it at home or you do it in treatment. And so I'm, I'm glad that you, you brought that up because it is very, it is very timely right now with some of my clients who, who know who I'm talking about. Chris, what are you noticing in the field with eating disorders? Are there any, and I don't like the word trends, but is there anything that you're, you're noticing that's shifted in patterns or increasing in behaviors or just like, what are you noticing? Well, I think um, food insecurity was brought to the surface during the pandemic. Um, and probably still is with um, things not being on the shelves that we are norm normally used to having, depending on where you live. Um, so I think that was a, a good topic to, to kind of come to the forefront again. Um, I think it challenged a lot of people that were in recovery around their safe foods, 
um, around their, you know, um, traditions and things. Um, but the the other thing I think is our inclusivity has really grown um, in the last five years. Um, you know, and, and men have a really difficult time accessing treatment for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, up to 10 million men are going to have an eating disorder in their lifetime. Males make up 25% of people with anorexia. They're often diagnosed later than women. Um, so there's a lot of need around identifying, treating, um, including um, all genders. And, um, and, I, and I've seen that improve. I know this sounds like it might be coming out of left field, but have you have have you had any experiences that are different for you because you're a male therapist? Is that because as you said, there's 25% of the eating disorders are with men, but that's not what shows up for treatment, right? Unfortunately, we still get the majority of women showing up at treatment. So has there been any barriers for you as a male therapist? Barriers for me as a male therapist, I'm sure there has. Um, one doesn't come to the surface immediately, but I'm trying to be very aware of who and what I am when I'm in the room with someone. Um, I tend to build rapport pretty easily with people, but I can't take that for granted because um, so many of us are, you know, we seem calm and collected on the outside and inside we're just this ball of anxiety and we're waiting for someone to mention it and then we get the decision do we say oh my god yes i totally have anxiety or um you know stuff it back in again i've worked with male clinicians before when i used to run treatment centers and it's, it depends again on the individual. There are some clients that are like, I just can't do it. It doesn't feel like safe for me or whatnot. And then there are other clients that ha actually have this really wonderful reparative experience of being able to sit with somebody of a different gender and actually feel seen by them and trust them and things like that. And so again, I think, I think the theme of this podcast is that it's all individual, it depends on the individual. Oh, I totally have had those experiences where um, we had lots of options. And so the client had a, had a voice and you could say, you know, this is what I'm comfortable with and this is what I'm not. And also experience what you said too, just the fact that I was a male in the room brought this whole new piece of um, of the puzzle with the client and they were able to have a reparative experience. And so that was always nice too. Yeah. I I feel badly. I feel like I I took the two of you all over the map today, like, cause I had so many questions that I wanted to ask. And unfortunately we are going to have to start winding down. Is there anything that I didn't ask either of you that you wanted to say or anything that you want to share before, before we ended? I'd just like to say I'm incredibly grateful to some of the people that helped make this possible. Uh, Jillian Lampert from the Red Sea was extremely helpful. Tammy Beasley and Courtney Stoddard um, were two residential dietitians that I could always call and ask them about, you know, what do you think about this or what do you think about that? 
having Sierra on the board, um, you know, having her voice and her opinions and has been so helpful to have someone from that perspective. And Christy Simmons from ERC, they, ERC has a great, you know, virtual treatment model. Um, and I think Claire Stipps fit right in with them. So I want to thank her too. And, you know, the team's great. So anyway, just a bunch of shout outs. Love it. Love it. Sierra, anything from you? And you're not obligated. No, I do. I, 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 I just want to share how grateful I am for this entire experience. Um, I know that it's, I'm, I'm in a very unique place. I've been very uh, blessed to be able to get where I am in, in my recovery and now having the opportunity to take that experience and share it with the world. And hopefully it helps some people like that. That means so much to me. And then also being able, like Chris said, being able to to partner with some of these incredible people who are a part of this company and making this uh, this product and, and really innovating how how we how we do treatment. Um, it's been it's been such an awesome experience, and I feel very grateful to to be a part of it. Well, I'm really really glad that we were able to get the both of you on the episode today, and I appreciate it. It's it's not easy getting multiple schedules to align to be able to do something. So I want to thank the both of you for being here. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Karen. My pleasure. Oh, you you guys can't see this, but Sierra and Chris are waving to each other over <laughs> Zoom. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening. <laughs>